0: So good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining another Keller and Heckman TOSCA 3030, uh, everyone's favorite pulse quickening subject. But uh, as we know, there's a lot going on under TOSCA, and I think we've got a pretty important subject or subjects here today. So uh, please don't forget to log in. I'll try to use this little green arrow right here. So, um, you know, and, of course, you can't hear me if you haven't dialed in, so um, please use these numbers to join the call and get the audio. All right. Everything's working here. Okay. Uh, This is me. Most of you, or or many of you at least know me, uh, Tom Berger with Keller and Hackman. I've been doing TOSCA uh, pretty much consistently for the last 25 years. So happy uh, to be uh, talking with you all today. Okay, the obligatory slide telling us what we're going to talk about. And basically, as I was getting prepared for this, you know, this talk really is about ways to get your PMN approved by U.S. EPA other than kind of the standard things that you need to do, such as carefully prepare your PMN, describe all your releases, et cetera, et cetera. So this is things other than uh, what's becoming more and more important these days, uh, preparing and submitting a very, very carefully prepared PMN. Well, also, as I was preparing for this uh, presentation, you know, as many of you know, I'm I'm also an engineer, so I'm left brain and I like things that are kind of discrete and quantitative. So I was hoping to make it more quantitative, but when I was going through everything I was going to talk about today, it struck me that really uh, what this talk is all about is the more qualitative concept of conditions of use. So I'm skipping ahead, but I think if you focus on this slide, these three bullet points, it will really help, uh, hopefully, Make the rest of this talk make sense. So just imagine if you're EPA and you get a PMN for something, you know, as simple as acetic acid, which, of course, is on the toxic inventory, as everyone knows, but something, a chemical that has a multitude of potential uses, okay? And your EPA, and as we'll see, EPA has to evaluate the substance for these three categories of uh, what, what we call conditions of use, the intended uses, the known uses, and the reasonably foreseen uses. The intended uses are easy. There's no no question about what these are. These are uh, the uses that are identified, in in this case, uh, the PMN. The known conditions of use is a little bit more subtle, but still not rocket science. It's basically uses of a substance for Tosca exempt uses, like food uses or, or uh, maybe uh, uh, some kind of pesticide use. So uh, So those two concepts of use are straightforward. The third one is really where we're going to spend the bulk of our, if not all, of our time here today. And I won't read this whole... Um, quote from you, and this comes from one of one of EPA's um, PMN determinations, but this is uh, at least EPA's current view of what a reasonably foreseen conditions of use is. So, reasonably foreseen, that's the phrase we're going to be using over and over here today. Uh, and again, I won't read this to you, but EPA says that this needs to be a case-by-case determination. It's highly fact-specific. Uh, it does not involve hypotheticals or conjecture. Uh, it's discretionary. And EPA will do things like look at how structurally analogous substances are used, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, about the only thing that's somewhat, you know, subtle, I guess, here is the very, very last part of this where EPA talks about uh, uses identified in an initial PMN that didn't make it into the amended PMN, and that basically uh, are uses that essentially were dropped in many cases to allow the PMN to be approved by EPA. So I think that's what that gets at. But this is at least you know, uh, one current view of EPA's view of conditions of use. Okay, and again, I'm going to go through some of these next five or six slides pretty quickly so we can get onto the good stuff, uh, because most of you know this anyway. So if you file a PMN, and if EPA chooses to regulate uh, your substance, EPA is going to issue one of two things. First, EPA can issue a Section 5E consent order or, and or, EPA can issue a Section 5A2 Significant New Use Rule or SNR, which uh, we, I think we all have come to know and love. So we'll be talking a lot about SNRs and consent orders today. And again, this is uh, this is pretty pretty basic stuff for for those of you uh, steeped in Tosca. Okay. So in short, uh, again, you file a PNP, EPA has some concerns. So they, so they don't drop the PMN or approve the PMN, um, but rather they have some concerns. So to protect against any unreasonable risk posed by uh, uncontrolled use of the PMN substance, they issue a TOSCA Section 5E consent order. Okay. Most of you have seen these things. You can get it on EPA's website and look at the boilerplate uh, templates. But basically, it's a contract uh, between EPA and the PMN submitter that spells out the conditions under which the PMN substance can be used under TOSCA. And I've just set forth a couple of, of pretty common um, uh, terms and restrictions that we're seeing in, in consent orders. Uh, let's see if this little arrow works here, but that means certainly we're seeing a lot of consent orders in, uh, for, uh, that contain respiratory requirements. We're seeing more and more uh, consent orders that require a minimum particle size. But certainly, you know, water release restrictions are very common, uh, and certainly um, uh, 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 either what we call upfront or uh, uh, production volume or time-triggered testing is also something that uh, that is still alive and well after the Lautenberg Act. Uh, uh, that's probably all we need to say about that here. or well, we have time to say about that here today. So again, a 5E order is a contract between a PMN submitter and EPA and contain, can contain all sorts of restrictions and conditions under which the PMN substance can be used under TOSCA. Okay. So, and some of these are going to be, these are a little bit more uh, relevant to what we're talking about here today. First, it does certainly take EPA some time to develop a consent order, uh, but certainly it doesn't take EPA a year. Once there is a meeting of the minds between the PMN and submitter uh on, on, on the substance or on the PMN case, uh, we're talking about a matter of weeks or a few months to prepare, typically, uh a Section 5E order. Second role is very, very important for what we're talking about here today, and that is um, once, again, there's a meeting of the minds, EPA executes uh, the 5E order with the PMN submitter. At that point, once the order is basically signed by both parties, the review period is over, and the manufacturer import of the substance can commence. And, of course, if and when that happens, the PMN submitter submits an NOC, and that adds the substance to the TOSC inventory, if and when that happens. Uh, this uh, bullet right here is also uh, quite important. And again, many of you know this, uh, uh, as they are contractual in nature, Section 5E orders are only binding on the PMN submitter. They're not binding on any other potential manufacturers or importers of the substance. However, again, as most of you know, uh, most orders, um, or many orders at least, require uh, the the signatory to bind recipients of the substance to the same conditions uh, as applied to the PMN submitter. So essentially, they take the conditions of the order and they... Uh, impose at at least one level down the supply chain. Second, uh, and you, sometimes you have to read some of these orders pretty darn carefully, some of these orders uh, limit distribution to one or two levels down the supply chain. So if you've got a chemical that moves multiple levels down the supply chain, you need to uh, um, uh, make sure you can comply with uh, this type of uh, provision. So now we're down here. Forgive me for so many arrows. Um, So, uh, because a 5E order only applies to the PMN submitter, when EPA issues a 5E order, it essentially is always required to follow up the 5E order with a SNR, which essentially takes the identical, in most cases, requirements of the 5E order and imposes them on all manufacturers, importers, and processors of the substance. So, this levels the playing field. So, every U.S. company that manufactures, imports, or processes the substance is subject to the SNR which uh, ostensibly uh, contains the same restrictions as does the 5E order. And these are called 5E snurs because they're snurs that follow 5E orders. Uh, another provision we're not going to dwell on today, but typically in a 5E order, there's a provision that says, you know, until or less than until 75 days after the SNER issues, you cannot cause, encourage, or suggest the manufacture or import of the substance by any other person. Uh, And this is done for a couple of reasons. First, until the SNR issues, as we just discussed, the requirements of the 5E order don't apply to any other company. So EPA wants to prevent those uses from occurring. And second, as we'll discuss in a bit here, if any uses are established by other companies because they're not subject to the 5E order, those uses could be used to challenge a SNR that might subsequently issue. Uh, And this also comes up, practically speaking, if you've got, say, a, um, a foreign company and they want to send a substance into the US, typically, uh, again, this provision would prohibit import by anyone other than the PMN submitter until after the SNR issue. So again, this is kind of a supply chain issue that you need to be um, careful of. Let me erase all these and move on. And sorry for my gravely voice (laughs) this morning, or this afternoon. Okay. Um, SNERS, again, most of you know what these are. SNERS are significant new use rules. These, as their name suggests, are uh, issued by uh, uh, rules. They're not orders. They're they're done using one of several different types of rulemakings. And what SNERS do is they designate certain uses of a substance as, quote-unquote, significant new uses. Okay? Um, one of these, uh, well, one of the limitations of SNERS is they cannot be used to restrict existing uses. They can only regulate new uses. And this is why, historically, uh, when EPA goes through a SNR SNR rulemaking, it says that as of the date of the posting of the SNR on EPA's website, uh, that establishes the cutoff date for establishing what is or is not a significant new use. And that makes sense, right? If you knew a SNR was coming, uh, you could go out and establish a whole bunch of existing uses and defeat a SNR. But by essentially um, relating back the effective date of the SNR, EPA tries to avoid this issue. (laughs) Uh, SNRs are like PMNs except for new uses. So if you want to undertake a a significant new use of a substance, you have to submit a significant new use notice or SNUN at least 90 days before you commence that significant new use. Um, Okay, when SNR is issued, we already talked about the 5E SNR right here. And, uh, at least historically, but not anymore, as we'll talk about, EPA would issue 5E Orders when essentially the uses described in the PMN didn't pose any concerns, but other potential uses did. And so, EPA would not issue a 5E Order, but simply went straight uh, to a SNR that would issue, um, in in some cases, uh, some months or or some years later. Let me get rid of this um, arrow. Okay, um, the 5E process and the 5E, you know, order, the basic standard there is unreasonable risk. So that's what EPA is trying to regulate uh, or, or prohibit. Um, in contrast, when you look at the criteria uh, that exist to promulgate a significant new use rule, they're not risk-based. They talk about changes in circumstances. So these four are the enumerated four, basically, circumstances. Uh, that must be considered by EPA to consider whether to promulgate a the SNR. They're not risk-based. They're basically changes in uses that may or may not give rise to an unreasonable risk. And, in fact, that's why you have this non-process. You file this none, epa could say, uh, could basically approve the the use and say, uh, yes, this is a significant use, but it doesn't pose an unreasonable risk. Therefore, that use is approved. So, very, very briefly, those are the criteria for SNR, SNRs. And again, the key is they're not risk-based. Uh, I won't read these to you, but basically, you know, the, the restrictions you find in SNRs basically mirror the type of restrictions that you find in Section 5E orders. And they can be very, very broad. Uh, and, uh, and you can see these in the regs at 40 CFR Part 721. Uh, but the only thing that's different is oftentimes you will see that a significant uh, new use will be defined by cross-reference to a PMN or a 5E order and, in many cases, cross-reference confidential business information, or CBI. Uh, And and ascertaining, then, what that significant new use is can be a challenge. And there are procedures to do this. And when was that rule? I want to say 2016, July of 2016. Yeah, July of 2016, EPA proposed changes to some of the general snare provisions, including the procedure to to go through this bona fide process to ascertain confidential, significant new uses. And I believe that rulemaking is scheduled to be, at least according to the regulatory agenda, scheduled to be completed in 2019. Okay, so now back to the future, as we say, we had the Lautenberg uh, Act in June of 2016, uh Tosca had fourteen definitions. Those were completely unchanged, but the Lautenberg Act added three new ones. And among them, what we're going to talk about here today, of course, um, is the definition of the phrase conditions of use. And as you can see, it contains the three terms that I had I think that was on slide five. Intended, known, or reasonably foreseen uses. Okay, so I don't think we have to belabor that, but that's um that's what a um conditions of use is. Uh, the PMN process uh, was not uh, totally dismantled. You still have to submit a PMN or SNUN at least 90 days before commencing a new substance or a new use. But, and of course, as I'm sure you've heard, uh, what's different now is that EPA must affirmatively uh, approve, deny, or condition a PMN under Section 5A3. So there has to be an affirmative determination by EPA based on the conditions of use. Okay, so this is this is a pretty important slide here. We're not going to talk about A. We're going to talk about B and C. So let me go back up and erase A. So basically, here are the three one of the, the three findings here on the left hand on the left hand side. These are the three findings EPA has to make when it reviews uh, when it uh, reviews a PMN. And so this is 5A3, and this is mapping over here on the right side of the chart. Over here. Uh, this is Section 5E. So, if EPA, for example, makes a Section 5A3B finding over here on the left, then it must act as required by Section 5E, and it shall issue a 5E order, as we'll discuss. And down here at the bottom, if EPA makes a Section 5A3C uh, not likely to present determination, this is a good determination, of course, for, from the PMN administrator standpoint, um, then basically uh, the substance is is free to be, commercialized. So probably on this chart the most important um uh parts of this chart are here in the middle, the five A three B risk determination that requires EPA to act under Section five E and requires EPA, uh as we'll see, to issue a Section five E order. Okay. So now again we're kind of we're kind of moving forward from the Lautenberg Act in twenty sixteen. Let me Get to my notes, make sure I don't forget anything. Okay, so about a year ago, EPA posted this working approach decision making framework document for Section 5. This isn't to be confused with the Section 6 framework and the, and the rulemaking and the litigation on that. Uh, in this document, go, skip down to the bottom here, this big, this block quote down here, uh, EPA describes this process, right? And remember here, the challenge is what do we do about these reasonably foreseen uses that could be um, very, very, very broad? EPA stated in this document that, when it, that with respect to these uses, that they could be addressed through SNRs. all right? Not through PMN review process, but through SNRs, and that's what, uh, calls what we're going to talk about in the next few slides, okay? So that was the birth of the non-order SNR. right? We've talked about the two other types of SNERS, the 5E SNR that levels the playing field, And the non-5E SNR, where EPA wasn't concerned about the uses in the PMN, but was concerned about other potential uses. In the non-order SNR context, things are just a little bit different. First, as its name suggests, there is never a 5E order. It's never issued. So sometimes this is called a one-step SNR process. Um, EPA basically holds off on its final safety uh, determination and basically, at the very end of the PMN review period, and as we know, this can be suspended or extended for months or even years, EPA issues, in this case, uh you know, a proposed SNR um, that prevents anyone from engaging in any of these, basically any of these other uses, right? Because known uses and intended uses were described in the PMN, and those presumably are okay. Now, one of the issues you have, as we'll discuss, is that, unlike 5E orders um, that can be issued within a period of weeks and months, SNRS can take years to be promulgated, particularly when you've got a backlog of SNRS, which EPA has right now. So one of the problems with this process is that even if there's a meeting of the minds about the substance and in terms of its risks and and, uh, protective measures, under the non-order SNR approach, You have to wait for the SNR to issue, at least in proposed form, if you're the PMN submitter, to produce the substance. Uh, On the good side of this, and this is bullet four, that uh, if you have – if EPA were to use a 5E order approach, it would make that 5E3B finding, and under the non-order SNR approach, EPA makes the 5A3 the good finding. (laughs) Essentially what EPA is doing, it's using the SNR to kind of collar in – the uses, and say, okay, we reviewed the substance under the known and intended conditions of use. You know, any other uses we think are reasonably, you know, could be um, reasonably foreseen, and those uses would will require a SNR to commence. That's how a non-order SNR works. Okay, so how did this all go over? Well, it, with respect to the environmental groups, not so well. Uh, NRDC, um, sued EPA over this framework document in the Second Circuit. And they allege that the framework document and this procedure, more specifically, uh, were inconsistent with the statute, and they violated the Administrative Procedure Act uh, for being a rule that wasn't promulgated without notice and comment or without going through notice and comment review pr- procedures, okay? One of the issues that we're not going to belabor here was, was there final agency action that allowed review? And we'll get to that in a little bit as well. Okay, and the threat was that, hey, if EPA, if you ever use this non-order snare process, uh, you know, we may challenge you once again. Okay, so let's skip down to the bottom. So what happened is, so this was back in January of this year. So what happened is, between January of this year and August, EPA made about 150 determinations on PMN cases. 100 and so that's what this 131, 131 of them uh, resulted in 5E orders, 19 of them I believe were approved, and EPA was not using this non-order SNR method. And so uh, EPA – I'm sorry, NRDC said, well, hey, EPA, since you're unlikely to use this process, we're going to voluntarily withdraw their case. And, indeed, the Second Circuit granted that uh, petition for withdrawal, and that suit is gone. However, seven weeks later, what happens? If you've been following the Federal Register, you will see that the EPA has issued multiple batches of snares. What do we have here? August 1st, August 17th, September 17th, October 3rd, October 10th. Did I miss one? October twenty or August 27th? Multiple batches of snares that had basically been caught in the backlog. These were all normal, i.e., traditional 5E snares, except for the batch that was issued on October 16th. This was the long-awaited first batch of non-order SNERS. And they were proposed SNERS for 13 substances. The comment period expires uh, tomorrow. I looked in the docket yesterday, didn't see anything in there yet, but I'm sure there will be comments on this. Uh, otherwise, now we're down on the second bullet, um, the snares were unremarkable. If you look at these significant new uses, uh, they're very, very typical of the significant new uses that you see for traditional um, SNRS under Tosca, particle size, water release restrictions, et cetera. So these were otherwise pedestrian SNRS, except they were non-order SNRS. A couple other things. I won't read this language to you, but basically EPA said, hey, you know, these these PMN review periods are basically still open, so there can't be any, um, uh, quote, unquote, existing or ongoing uses that would be outside uh, SNRS authority, EPA, as it uh, typically does, establish an earlier date uh, that would establish the cutoff date for establishing existing uses, and this wasn't even mentioned in the proposal. EPA, uh, what, a day before the the cutoff date, um, published or, or posted on its website the Section 5A3, actually these are 5A3C. I should have put that in there. There's a little C right here, just to be clear, 5A3C. Not likely determinations for these chemicals. So again, so to, so in layman's terms, EPA said, hey, these chemicals look fine to us; they're not likely to present unreasonable risk, but we are proposing SNRs to limit potentially reasonably foreseen uses. So. Where are we now? And I could spend, you know, what do we have? We only have five or six minutes left. I could spend an hour just on this slide, uh, but we don't have that much time. So these non-order scenarios raise a multitude of issues. For example, is this final agency action? Uh, uh, because if there isn't final agency action, typically it cannot be reviewed by a court. And there are court cases on this, like the Abbott Labs case and Bennett v. Speer. All these cases that you learn about in law school are at issue here. Another issue, who has standing to basically uh, sue over this? Um, And of course, you know, one question would be, do the uh, NGOs have standing? And there's the the, uh, Friends of the Earth case and and, and other case law talking about what we call institutional standing. Uh, When do organizations have standing to sue on behalf of their members? And typically you have to show that you have sufficient cause or entry in fact. And there's a three-part test out of this Friends of the Earth case that we don't have time to discuss today. Third bullet is, you know, is really the crux of of the legal issues. Can EPA use this non-auditioner process? As you mentioned, you know, if EPA were to review all all the uses, it would come out under 5A3B, and 5A3B says EPA has to use a Section 5E order, right? It can't skip that step. But there's this language that says EPA has to issue a 5E order to the extent necessary to protect against an unreasonable risk. Uh, and and some have pointed to Section 5F4 that basically says that a SNR ha- um, has to follow a 5E order, but that uh, that could be read as saying simply, meaning that if you have a 5E order, you have to issue a SNR to level the playing field. Uh, arguments also uh, you know, could be made that you can't use a SNR uh To regulate a new chemical, you can only use a snare to regulate an existing chemical, uh, although I think that's, uh, that's a non-starter, that argument there. Other issues about what if testing is required, EPA has informally told us that if tox- toxicological testing is required, they plan to use the traditional 5-E order route. And then you have some more practical arguments. You know, going back to my, you know, pretty trite acetic acid example, you know, if you were given a chemical like that and you had to assess all reasonably foreseeable uses, how in the world would you do that? So, trying to find some middle ground between, you know, broad interpretations of the statutory language and what could be practically done. Uh, you know, and of course, the NGOs are focused on does this procedure at the end of the day protect against unreasonable risks? We already pointed out that snares aren't risk based. The criteria are basically Focused on changes in production volume and exposure. Other issues like reopener, uh, where 5E orders typically can be amended and reopened, it's more difficult to do that with SNRs. You've got other issues about, you know, uh, for example, these chemicals right now. If they're on the inventory, you know, anyone could initiate a significant new use because the SNR isn't finalized yet. But then they would have to cease those activities if and when the SNR is finalized. If issues like that, although historically, uh, in my opinion, you really had a larger issue, and that was, was you would have a PMN review period that would expire, and then a non-5E snare wouldn't issue for a year or two later. And in that entire time, companies theoretically would be free to establish existing uses that would be outside the snare authority and subject the snare to challenge. I already mentioned the, uh, the penultimate bullet here. That it takes a long time to publish SNRs, and that keeps these products off the market for a significant period of time. So, um, you know, if EPA were, was able to issue SNRs, uh, uh, you know, on a more timely basis, that would uh, take the sting out of this process. And the last one has to do with um, kind of the trade-off, right? If you, you know, if you go if 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 you go the non-order SNR route, you get the more favorable 5a3c finding but you have to wait a lot longer to get your chemical on the market. And some companies uh have taken the position that, hey, we don't care about a 583B finding. We want to get our chemical on the market, consistent with Tosca, of course. Okay, so that, <laughs> in brief, is is where we are on non-order snurs. But there are some other things going on as well. And again, think of this webinar as focusing on the vexing issue of Assessing reasonably foreseen uses. So, another way of assessing these is to just take a narrower view of uses. And when was it? This was, uh, was this the one? No, uh, oh, I skipped up. Skip my notes. I think this is uh, late July. Yeah, late July of this year, when many of us were on vacation with the kids. Um, before school started again, EPA published one of these determination documents for this polymer, and there's another one as well. I don't have the PMN number handy, um, and it was uh, and it was used as a deodorizer. And as you can see, this is a Section 5a3. This is a not likely to present an unreasonable risk finding, which means the polymer could go on the market. Okay, nothing unusual so far, right? Except I can't advance my slide. There we go. Uh, and I won't read this to you, but basically, if you look at the first two bullets EPA found some potential environmental and human health effects associated with this substance based on analogous substances. Okay, so, so this wasn't a chemical that lacked at least potential toxicological issues. Uh, but in any event, EPA took the position that the intended uses right here were those described in the PMN. We know that. There weren't any known uses of the substance. Remember, those are uses for TSCA-exempt purposes, and without explanation, EPA said there are no reasonably foreseen uses of the substance. And so I think uh, many commentators have said it would be be good if EPA would explain the reasoning for this um, uh, so that perhaps other PMN submitters could uh, benefit from understanding EPA's thinking in this regard. So again, kind of a unique case. Uh, There was one other PMN in July where EPA, uh, again, without much explanation, uh, took the position that they were no reasonably forcing uses, therefore uh, they could make the subparagraph C finding. Come on, slide advance. Okay, another approach, and again we'll go quickly on this, and we've talked about this in some other webinars, uh, it's not really an approach, but you may recall that about a year and a half ago EPA essentially established these four new categories, and these were in the um, under EPA's Lung Toxicity Project. Uh, And we've had a number of clients uh, with chemicals, particularly in this category here, surfactants in the polymer lung overload um, category. And these documents set forth the meets and bounds of these categories and uh, detail down here uh, what tests would satisfy uh, EPA's concerns or fill any data gaps. And the key here I'll try to use two or three arrows, is that certain physical property testing, and I think I've got more of this on my next slide, uh, could basically serve as off-ramps uh, and uh, address certain of EPA's needs. So we've been working with a number of clients to conduct particle size, surface tension, and bioavailability studies that can go a long way. So so if there's a you know, another takeaway from this webinar would be um, to consider whether uh, you want to conduct some of these studies, because in many cases, they can, they can get you a lot of mileage with EPA properly, in our view. Uh, too much detail for today's webinar, but these are just some more details of some of the physical property and toxicity studies at issue. And again, you don't, you know, if you do some of the studies up here in this bullet, that can obviate the need to do some studies in this bullet. Uh, just a couple of quick points. EPA has recently espoused a, a vibrational particle size analysis and has rejected kind of a traditional particle size analysis. So um, don't go launch testing without at least looking into that. Uh, It's been difficult to uh, find laboratories that can uh, conduct this biosolubility study. Um, But again, uh, it's it's certainly far, far more cost effective in most cases to conduct physical chemical property testing than traditional toxicology, uh, toxicological testing, and that can help you get your PMN approved uh, under Section 5. I think I'm coming to my last slide. I wish I had another half hour, because there's probably an hour worth of material in this talk, but hopefully you, you learned something today. Um, and then finally, an approach that EPA is using uh, is to essentially, let's skip to the bottom, approve a PMN substance. Again, 5A3C is the good finding, the not likely to present an unreasonable risk finding to approve a polymer under 5A3C uh, with no 5E order, no SNR, but it goes on the inventory with a flag. In this case, it's a PE1 flag, which means that the polymer is approved, but uh, it must meet subparagraph E1 of the Tosca polymer exemption, okay? And subparagraph E1 of the Tosca polymer exemption, as you may recall— Requires that a polymer must be at least a thousand uh, number average molecular weight, and has to have less than 10% olig- oligomers less than 500 molecular weight, and was it 25% less than a thousand molecular weight, and has to meet certain restrictions on reactive functional groups. So this, so the end result is, and again there are, there are about 12 of these on the, that uh, that you can find on EPA's website you have now 12 or so Tosca inventory listings that have this flag uh, that reads along the lines of what I have here, or it could be be an E2 here or an E3, uh, that basically set forth uh, some of the compositional restrictions of this inventory listing, because you may recall that um, otherwise Tosca inventory listings don't have molecular weight constraints, right? You can file a PMN for a certain you know, grade of polyethylene, and if and when that goes on the inventory, um, you can make it with any molecular weight, the same way you can typically vary monomer ratios, okay? But these would be special inventory listings um, that uh, uh, help to uh, prevent any risk from uh, toxicological risk. I mean, a couple of questions are raised, too, here. I mean, there are other requirements of the polymer exemption other than E1, For example, what if you made this polymer with 1.8% of a phosphorus-containing compound? So it would have the same name, but some of you know there's another provision of the polymer exemption that limits the amount of phosphorus to, I believe, it's 0.2%. So, you know, some other questions come up here. Um, And you also may recall, finally, that under the old Tosca polymer exemption, the pre-1995 version, you did have polymers that went on the inventory with either a Y1 or Y2 flag, which is very similar to the approach you see here, so that was a very quick 30 minutes. Um, I hope you you learned something here today again I wish I had I, I wish this was a tosca you know thirty forty five um, but uh, that's what's going on in terms of non-order snurs and ways um, substances are getting listed on the inventory so thank you everyone. Have a great Thanksgiving and be safe.